Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope. Now, I would like to introduce a good friend of mine, Mr. Spencer Schauer. Thank you. Uh, I love James Walton. He's a good man. Well, hi, everybody. Good evening. Everybody doing okay? Okay, me, I'm incredibly nervous, just so you guys know. So if I result to copious amounts of flattery, bear with me. But really, you guys are the most gorgeous church in all of Oregon. It's true. So just, you know. Yeah, no, that's worth applause. So anyway, my name is Spencer Schauber. I am 22 years old, and I serve here uh, in the Next Gym Department right across the way. Uh, as the associate youth director, and I hang out with a lot of your junior hires and high schoolers. And so, you know, if I just bust out spontaneously into a game, who wants to win 50 bucks? Eat this pie. Uh, just bear with me again. Uh, I am eagerly awaiting a countdown of 99 days, approximately, until I get to marry my gorgeous fiance, Kate Bogue, who, yes, who is going to be distracting me uh, throughout the duration of this message with her beauty. So. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, anyway, uh, again, I want to uh, welcome you to New Life's Next Gen Weekend. Um, every aspect of the service this week is being uh, handled by youth who are under the age of 30. And so I'm talking everything from this scraggly mess up here to the worship team to everybody over there. A- everything is being handled by young people. And that is just a wonderful testament to this church, not only for trusting the youth of this community, but for raising those people up. And so I'm just very excited, but uh, let's pray. Jesus, as we uh, come before you tonight, and uh, Lord, just help me, Father, just with uh, being able to bring the word that you put on my heart, Lord, and that the word that you want to speak to this congregation. Uh, we pray that we would receive it, Lord, and we pray that uh, above all else, God, that we would just encounter you today. Uh, remind us of who you are in our lives, and we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I didn't grow up in church. I was dedicated here by Pastor Ron as a baby, and then I just kind of pieced out at the age of three. Uh, you know, I just kind of took off, and it's just it's crazy. Uh, and uh, I uh, didn't actually come to the Lord until I was 12, no, 13 years old, and I met Pastor Ryan outside of Fred Meyer, waiting to get a PlayStation 2 at the wee hours of the morning, and I didn't want anything to do with God, and he invited me to church, and after that I became saved, and all of a sudden this new world of Christianity became so fresh to me. I didn't know anything. Uh, you know, people were like, oh, the book of, you know, Matthew. And I'm like, I have a friend named Matt, same, same guy, you know, no, no. And uh, I was burning with a plethora of questions about my faith. I mean, a- everything was different and everything was new to me, you know. I-, I was, you know, like two solid objects can't occupy the same space at the same time. So how does three, how does the Trinity work? I don't, I don't get it, you know. And, and why did Jesus have to die for our sins? And who is this DC talk person and where can I find him in the scriptures? And, and why is Job so sad all the time? 
I just, I just didn't understand anything. And so I asked Pastor Ryan, like, Pastor Ryan, will you meet with me at Dairy Queen every Thursday? And can we, can we just do that? And so we did that for two years. And uh, I wrestled with a lot of issues my, my other Christian friends didn't seem to wrestle with. You know, and, and I was just going through a lot of intellectual barriers to beliefs that things didn't make so much sense to me. And so I was like, I've got to figure this out. And as I grew in my walk with the Lord, I became convinced that Christianity made sense. That Christianity was the truth and that my faith in Jesus, uh, he revealed himself to me in a true way. But not only know in my heart, but I knew with my mind that Christ was Lord. And I began to fully understand that as Matthew 22, 37 states, a Christian is to love God with all their heart, their soul, and their mind. Now, I came to a point where I really realized how important this is for every Christian to utilize their mind. Uh, when I was in my junior year uh, at high school, and I was in my humanities class, and too often I, I didn't encounter Christians that really kind of went through a rigorous intellectual reasoning of their faith. Uh, at least in, in, in my age group. And uh, in my junior year, in my humanities class, we kind of went through this biblical gauntlet about halfway through the year where basically passages in Scripture like the flood and uh, uh, the fall and the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the good stuff, uh, were just dissected and discussed and just kind of ripped apart by, by the, the class, basically. And normally I would relish that opportunity to be able to talk about the Word in public school. I mean, as a young Christian, I was like, yeah, let's, let's do that. I'm awesome. You know, it's exciting. But I had to watch as a lot of my peers had their faith ripped apart through intellectual questioning. And this was such a staggering revelation to me that and just hearing how they, how they answered some of the questions the class proposed to them was just was, was really hard for me. One of the questions was, you know, how do you know that the Bible wasn't changed by the church 500 years ago or that they, they added to it along the way? Their answer was, well... You just have to have faith that it wasn't. Or, how do you know that the disciples didn't just steal Jesus off the cross and it's just a hoax? Well, I don't know. And I remember being the only person in class who was getting fired up about it and wanting to, to answer these questions. But after a while, the teacher stopped calling on me. And I was like, okay. And this radically shaped my view on my faith and my, the faith of my peers around me. An essential part of living the full Christian life is found in Romans 12.2. It says here, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Notice Paul never says here, be transformed by the renewing of your heart or be transformed by feeling good feelings during worship service. No, he specifically addressed the mind. And have, have we as Christians fully grasped what, what uh, the Scriptures are telling us here? That part of our Christian walk and our regeneration as saints in the eyes of God is the transformation of our mind. I think we might be missing a huge part of our, our witnessing power. We might be missing out on a titanic part of our discipleship process. My message today is entitled The Forgotten Tool, and indeed it seems that the church has forgotten, and in many cases, about the best tool that we have. And in a sense, you could say the church has, you know, lost its mind. You know, tongue-in-cheek way, I guess. But when we as a church 
don't use our minds. We become conformed to the pattern that the world has deemed for us. Now, while my personal interaction with the Christian mind propelled most of the sermon, and I, I can say that definitely, us as a church, many of us have been using our mind and our faith. And I can say, all too, that many of us haven't, at least in my interaction with, with my fellow Christians. And you have to forgive me. I get very parched very easily. So if I stop to take a drink, you know, again, forgive me for that. And I can say that most of our modern American culture is largely secular. You turn on the TV and what do you see? It's, it's probably not TBN or anything like that. More often than not, we see that uh, the church is beginning to really not have a lot of say in the way society goes. And, and we have participated in a shift and transition away from intellectual circles and secular arenas. Now, rather than boldly facing the current wave of the secularism, the church has retreated in a kind of a self-sustaining club with its own Christian versions of everything. You notice how we always have, uh, we take something that uh, the world has and we kind of Christianize it. We have a my church instead of my space, God tube instead of YouTube, and the list goes on and on and on. And that we are no longer an oasis in a desert of the world for people. R.C. Sproul gives a great prognosis on this situation. He says, The church is safe from the vicious hands of the secularist, as educated people have finished with stake-burning circuses and torture racks. No martyr's blood is shed in the secular West. So long as the church knows her place and remains quietly on her modern reservation, let the babies sing and pray and read their Bibles continually steadfastly in their intellectual stupefaction. The church's extinction will not come by sword or pillory, but by the quiet death of irrelevance. We get scared so often of new thoughts and new ideas, and, and rather than boldly engaging those, we kind of retreat into a shell. And rather than having an intellectual roar, the church and society has been reduced to a stifled whimper. And if we have any hope of being relevant in our world today, we must recapture the best tool that God has given us. We must learn to love God with all our mind. Now, while I can present this to you, unless I'm able to really back this up, it doesn't mean much. And so, so why should we love God with all our mind? Why, why should we even devote ourselves to this? And the first thing, and the most important thing, is that we see in the biblical witness that we are to do this. I mean, everything I'm saying would be kind of useless unless this was in the Word. Are there any instances where the mind is used in conjunction with faith? Plenty. In fact, Jesus and the Apostle Paul regularly used their mind in their, in their ministry. Christ constantly reasoned and debated with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and debunked what they understood to be right. And as we see in one of my pa- favorite passages in Matthew 22, 22 through 33. Uh, excuse me, starting in verse 20, 23. Uh, when the, uh, yeah, my bad. Uh, verse 23. Uh, the same day, Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. They asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, when we're reading this, we're kind of like, okay, that's an interesting question. But we don't really see that they're laying kind of a carefully planned trap for Jesus. Now, he can answer the question in one of two ways, and they're expecting them, basically kind of trying to pigeonhole him into saying what they want him to say. But Jesus does such a cool thing here in verse 29. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. 
For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as far as the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now those old rascals of the Sadducees are trying to trip up Jesus. And in their response about the questions of the resurrection, Jesus responded intelligently to the Sadducees' trap, basically effectively nullifying their attack on him. And in turn, the crowd was astonished and amazed. I mean, I'm sure they said to one another, did you see that? Jesus, like, just Jedi mind-tricked those Sadducees. You know, and it was incredible. To, I, I, the, the words astonished and amazed show up so often when talking about Jesus' teachings. And we see that he responds intelligently to their trap. Now, another one of the greatest proponents of the Christian mind was the Apostle Paul. Paul utilizes his mind frequently in his witness, as we see throughout much of the book of Acts. In Acts 19, 8-10, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some people became stubborn and continued unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I mean, notice how Paul reasons and persuades. Now, Paul, throughout all of Acts, does this. And it's amazing to see how frequently he uses his mind in his ministry. Not only do we see biblical examples of our intellect shine through, and the examples of people, but we ourselves are admonished to give a defense when asked. As we see in 1 Peter three fourteen through 15 Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Don't fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now the key emphasis on this passage is with gentleness and respect. Now I know for myself that I've, I've you know, thought that I, I knew everything and when I, when I was witnessing to somebody and uh, I, I didn't do it with gentleness and respect and rather than being kind to them, I was really aggressive with, with how I debunked their views and tore apart what they believed. And I lost sight of that passage, that we need to minister and evangelize to people out of love and with gentleness and respect. Now, I, I think we can agree that we, we see a big portion of Scripture talking about utilizing our mind. And, and I think I cannot stress enough that also our mind is important in, in, in the use of evangelism. And uh, we also know that Part of loving God with all our mind, why we need to do that is we forgot a part of our evangelism. Now, I know that uh, going back to uh, Romans 12.2, the emphasis on loving God with your mind isn't about amassing information. We get so wrapped up in wanting to, uh, to pull together just this big pile of books and say, you know, look at, look at how much I know. And it's not about that. It's about transformation. And I have to stress that faith isn't merely issues of matters of the heart. We're to love God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. And a lot of times we can kind of swing the pendulum too far. I know that uh, I, I've done it before in my walk where you know, I, I've swung too far into loving God with my mind and faith became propositional to me. And, and I thought I could know everything about God. And I've also swung too far into faith where you know, I, I've just had, uh, gotten into kind of rough terms in spirituality and not, not being able to really understand what Scripture's saying and be able to talk to people. But brothers and sisters, our mind works in conjunction with our heart to produce that relationship of trust, which is faith. Now, 
God wants us to have the heart of a child, but with the mind of an adult. A lot of our focus of evangelism has changed too. Uh, Over the course of the last century, we've had a steady erosion of traditional apologetic reasoning and arguments. And as uh, J.P. Moreland notes, evangelism increasingly associated with charismatic rhetoric, Christian buzzwords, and an overdone appeal to felt needs. In the way we do evangelism, we have inadvertently let this world squeeze us into its mold. He goes on to describe why a woman left her Catholic church to go to a Baptist one. The people were nicer, the music was better, and she had better feelings about it. And while those are nice reasons, they don't necessarily denote just leaving a church. Simply put, if we evangelize the said needs rather than the truth of the gospel, our witness has no power. I mean, think about how many times that people have asked you, why do I need God? And we respond a lot of times to trying to address said needs rather than speaking the truth of the gospel that it's rational and is the best choice you can ever make in your life. Now, simply, Christianity, I've heard people say that part of it, a lot of times that people can say that the Holy Spirit is to replace our minds and, our, and our, the role of our faith. And brothers and sisters, that's not true. The Holy Spirit is our teacher first and foremost. But when it comes down to it, we are expected to put some work into, into harnessing and sharpening that tool, which is our mind. Well, Christianity isn't supposed to make sense or be rational. Isn't the gospel supposed to seem like foolishness to those who don't know Jesus? I've heard people say these things, but who said the gospel needed to be foolishness in order to reach people? We see Paul all the time. I mean, Paul will use anything to, to reach people for the gospel. I mean, he even uses the tomb of an unknown God and says, you know, doesn't, this, this is your, the God that, that I'm speaking of. And one of the most uh, beloved authors and, and Christians of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, he didn't come to Christ to an impassioned sermon or Christ meeting his emotional needs or that God would bless him with abundant material possessions. No. According to his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, Lewis came to the Lord through intellectual reasoning and deduction. Nothing else made sense to him. And our witness carries so much more weight with people when we're able to, to love God with all our mind and be able to, to help them meet and go through their intellectual barriers to belief. And one of the, the different things, too, is, is about our changed world. Uh, that, that can, uh, today, in, in American society, it's a lot different than it was four years ago. I'm pretty sure for, for most of the people that were around then, you can say that a lot of things have changed. And I can say one thing for sure, that never before in American society has Christianity been so opposed as it has been in the last 40 years. And Christianity's greatest opposition in America isn't so much another religion like Buddhism or Islam, but really, I mean, the things that we face today more than anything are relativism and atheism. I mean, I can ask anybody that went to my school, like, did you encounter a you know, Muslim person? No. What about a you know, Buddhist? No. Did you encounter a lot of atheists? Oh, yeah. And I can say that relativism creeps into every avenue of our society. I'm sure all of us have heard the phrases, who are you to judge other people's beliefs? Or, that's, that's true for you, but not for me. Or, Jesus was a great moral teacher. And personally, my, my absolute favorite, there is no absolute truth, you know, which in itself is kind of a self-contradiction. You're saying that that's not a truth? <laughs> oh, you're right. So, if anybody drops that on you, you can say, well, in effect, you said nothing. So, <laughs> anyway, that, that don't be mean, again, out of love and gentleness and respect, so... You know, in most American schools, that's what people are, that's what our young people are faced with. They're not faced with other religions as much as they're faced with the absence of it. I know a lot of times when I was growing up with other, you know, uh, my friends in high school, they didn't believe in Jesus, and that was the road that they were taking. 
And, you know, if you go over the, the past several years, say if a student went to OSU and was struggling with some questions of doubt, they would have had their faith mercilessly torn apart by a professor who believed that Jesus was in the ground decomposing. He even said food for dogs. But boy, was he a great moral teacher. Whew. Let me tell you what. And, you know, we wonder why our kids and their youth go to college and they drop off the face of the earth. It's because they're faced with people that, that don't believe in Christ. And, you know, there's two things that they'll, they'll come to, to, to grips with. And it's first thing is the old faithful snare of sin. I mean, sin more than anything else drives us away from God. But I would say probably the second thing after that is, is the barrage of intellectual getting torn apart intellectually by their professors every day when they go to class. I've heard it happen with so many of my friends and come back and talk to them. I'm like, you have to sit through that every day? And he's like, yeah, the teacher will call me out and I'll have to stand up and give a defense. And I don't, I don't know what to say most of the time. I mean, and look at what kind of books have been recently on the bestseller list. You've got uh, Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, where basically he says that Christianity is mass insanity, that uh, our faith is basically a computer virus that's entered the computer software of our minds and it's just ruining us. Or Christopher Hitchens, how God is not great, how religion poisons everything, and it's the sole reason why our world is terrible. Now, what's sad about these books and these, these arguments is they don't have a lot of traction. Uh, I've, I've read the good summary of them and, and got into a lot of them, and they just, they're very aggressive, and they're like a loud dog that's barking at you, but that's basically all it is. It doesn't have a lot of bite to it. But what's so sad about this is that uh, people get so swept up in it, I mean, it also helps that they speak in really fine British accents, which, as we all know, make everybody sound smarter. And, uh, you know, I mean, if I spoke in a British accent, you guys would be like, man, that Spencer, he's incredible. But we as Christians need to be aware that these arguments have a lot of traction in people. I know that all of us, when we're constantly getting barraged by that stuff, it starts to affect us. And rather than deal with these attacks head on, we're, we kind of keel over and just kind of plug our ears and say, all right, I'm not going to listen to that. I don't agree with that. But Paul encouraged the Colossian church to be wary of this kind of teaching. In Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, and not on Christ. Now, Paul wasn't saying, don't be captured by philosophy, which is hollow and deceitful, but by the philosophy of man, which is not according to Christ. All truth is God's truth, and we become easily led astray when we forget that. If the church has any hope of having a witness in the face of these threats, we must buckle down and not cede any more ground to those to that aggressive arguments. We must allow God to transform us through the renewing of our mind. Now, I'm pretty sure we have a good reasoning for why we need to do these things, but we also need to know how do we love God with all our mind. And that's important. And the first thing we can do is we've got to sharpen the tool which God has given us. Now, you cannot hope to even begin this process without prayer. Prayer is paramount in the transformation of your mind. And we're not supposed to separate matters of the mind and the heart. We're one person. And we can't hope to begin this process without bathing it in prayer. Also, we need to realize that a fully satisfying intellectual walk is within your grasp. Me, I have never felt more assured and more confident in my faith when I devoted myself to these things. I mean, I used to struggle with a lot of, lot of, lot of barriers to belief. And when I finally just was like, all right, Lord, I'm going to sharpen my tool, 
my life and my devotional walk with Him completely changed. One thing we can start to do is study the Word. Don't just read it for devotion. I mean, I know that sometimes you need to do that. You just need to sit down with your, with, with your Bible and just say, God, just let me soak in this. And that's important. But we also need to study it. Be students of God's Word. Now, uh, I'm not saying, you know, it's not about amassing information like I said before. It's not like we're not supposed to go around and say, look at the big brain on spans. It's not about that. We come to Scripture to be transformed. And I want to encourage you guys, don't get overwhelmed or discouraged. It's really easy to feel like, man, I have, I'm not, I don't feel like the sharpest tool in the drawer. I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm capable of this. And I don't think any of us are going to bust out Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica. It's about as thick as a tire. I mean, and I don't, I don't want that for you guys. I'm sorry. Um, but again, you know, uh, one, one theologian, and uh, I think Pastor Bruce can help me out with this. I forget his name. But uh, he once said that we try to fit the ocean of God's knowledge into the teacup of our minds. And we're not meant to have exhaustive knowledge on God. We can't, you know. But we should take comfort that we only got to fill up that teacup. And with the ocean of God's knowledge, if we apply ourselves to it, we can do that. Now, again, I'm not some intellectual juggernaut who's telling you to do these things. I don't have seven doctorates or, uh, you know, a master's in video games, but I could easily get one, rest assured. But despite that still, uh, getting a B for me was a sweet deal. I mean, you know, when I got my report card back, if I got an A, I'd like pass out. You know, and a B was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. You know, and so I'm, I'm not, it's not like it's, incapable for all of us to be there. I mean, I'm probably one of the worst people when it comes to studying. I mean, you can ask Kate. Uh, God bless her. She sat through and helped me learn Hebrew for, you know, just, uh, she's just amazing. And I am not the best student in the world. But my point is, is that God never intended for the intellectual elite to use their minds. No, he intended for all of us to use it. And we need to shake off the notion that we don't need to do this. And I'm sure all of you guys, when I started talking about this, had nightmare flashbacks about being in college, staying up super late, and, and writing massive amounts of papers, and you're like, don't take me back there, Spence, don't do this thing to me. And I know, I know, I know there's a cringe when I say something like study the word, you're like, study, And I'm not saying, I mean, that, that we all need to go back to college, or we all need to do that, because a lot of us have families and a lot of us don't have money for that. I can, I can say I, I definitely don't have money to go uh, to, to get my master's right now or anything like that. I still haven't finished my bachelor's. It's one thing at a time, Spencer. Uh, but even still, uh, we can start to build up our intellect and start to kind of shift and transition those things into sharpening our mind. Utilize the expansive Christian education that's at your fingertips. In the resource center, we're going to have um, uh, an order sheet for some books you can get. Dubs, you mind bringing those up to me? Thanks, Dubs. James Walton, ladies and gentlemen, he's a good man. All right. Now, these books, I'm not saying these are the best books in the world. I love them. I use them. And a lot of them, um, I took this one from CBC. This one's for my mom. And I don't know where I got this one. Um, but Who Made God? This is uh, answers to over 100 questions, and it touches on other things. You know, for instance, who made God or does the Bible have errors in it? Where did the universe come from? Great book to check out. Um, it's by Ravi Zacharias. He's the man. So really, really good. True for me, not for you. This is deflating the slogans that leave Christians speechless. For instance, you know, saying something like, who are you to judge others? Or Christians are so intolerant and, and things like that. And this is a great book to pick up if, you know, you're struggling with relativism. And it's by uh, Paul Copen. And finally, Timothy Keller's The Reason for God. 
This is pretty much the mere Christianity of the 21st century. I would highly recommend picking this up. It's great. It's well-written. And uh, if you go out to the resource center, they're going to have some sign-up sheets and basically say, like, hey, I want Who Made God, or I want True For Me, Not For You, or The Reason For God. And I'd highly recommend picking these up. They're a great way to start off. So, thanks, Dubs. Oh, love James. So, again, another thing that we need to do is also take advantage of that enormous library that we have across the street. We have such an amazing, amazing library that's full, chock full of great stuff. And I would encourage you guys, if you need to go over there, talk to some of the professors that are here. I know, um, and I'm going to name drop some people, but talk to, you know, Pastor Bruce. Talk to, you know, Rabbi Pastor Dr. Wallace, Jeremy Wallace. You know, talk to, uh, talk to Al Carpenter, you know. Talk to, uh, uh, you know, whoever over here. Talk to our pastoral staff, and they can give you some great, great, great material to use. And so, again... Um, don't feel overwhelmed or discouraged. You know, it's okay to start small. But also another thing that we can do too is take notes in church. I know all you guys are like, okay. Um, But I can say that taking notes in church is important because I know for me, if I was in your position, I would forget everything I'm saying if I didn't take notes. The next day I'd be like, that boy, that hairy boy, what was he talking about last night? (laughs) Something about our minds. Don't use our minds. Yes. Yes, that was the one. And I know I would, I, I would forget everything I'm saying if we don't take notes, and that's huge. But most of all, uh, be encouraged. Uh, it's, it's so easy, and, and we can get so petrified of, of loving God with our mind, and even when it comes to conversations with people. I know all of us have probably you know, been absolutely terrified to share our faith with somebody and then thinking we're going to mess it up in some way, right? I've been there, and I've messed it up before. But we need to just kind of let go of that. And be okay with, if somebody asks us a question about our faith, not trying to pull up an answer out of the middle of nowhere, but just be like, you know what, can I get back to you on that? I'm going to go check that out real quick. And that's okay. And if we say something stupid, we just say, sorry, that was stupid. I'm sorry. And and we need to be okay with, with not knowing everything. Now, eventually we can all be self-taught scholars. One of my most favorite authors is named A.W. Tozer, who actually preached here in Canby, over in Canby Grove, which Pastor Ron told me that, and I was like, seriously? Why couldn't I have been born four years ago? I wish I could have heard that. But he, uh, uh, he was a self-taught theologian. I mean, he didn't even graduate grade school. I mean, and he had no professional theological training, and he devoted himself to, to studying the Word, studying the ancient church fathers, and really began to build himself up a library. And he started small, too. And he's wrote some of the deepest works of our uh, modern Christian, Christian pantheon of authors. But if we devote ourselves to sharpening our tool, watch and see what God will do through your life and do, do through your witness. Do through your witness. I think that works. <laughs> well, also, we can love God with all our mind by confronting our doubts. Now, I think if we were being honest for a second, I think we've all had doubts at one point in our, life, in our lives and our walk with the Lord. And doubt can come through a question we're faced with, circumstances that come up, or, you know, an enemy of the gospel attacking our faith. And uh, it can be a difficult thing to navigate through. It's almost like a fog or a bog. And it's so amazing to me that you can have one little question about your faith, and that can be the thing that keeps you up at night. And it can be something really simple. And you have, and that thing can cause us to doubt whatever it is. I mean, it's different for all of us. You know, I mean, I remember one time I found out that, uh, that 
because somebody told me that God was the author of the Bible and I find out that the Gospels were written by these four guys and I was like, is God, what? I can't believe this. Is, this. is this God not the author of scriptures? It's all a lie, you know. And, and guys, it's so funny that we can let one thing just kind of cause us to doubt when there are thousands of reasons to believe. And the enemy would like nothing more than to drag us down into believing a lie. And more often than not, the road to, from doubt into unbelief is a gradual one. And I'm going to butcher this quote mercilessly. I couldn't find the book. It's C.S. Lewis said this in the Screwtape Letters, which is a, a fun book to read. But uh, he says in this, The road to hell isn't the one with the sharp turns and the signposts and the dramatic events in life, but the gentle curve that goes unnoticed. And, you know, one thing about doubt is that a lot of times it can be gentle and it can go unnoticed. And it's very encouraging a lot of times to see in the Scriptures that we also have heroes of the faith that struggle with doubt. Of course, Doubting Thomas, you know, that's a heck of an adjective to have, you know, associated with you everywhere you go. <laughs> doubting Thomas, he doubts, you know. And uh, you look at the Psalms, you know, How long, O Lord, will you hide your face forever? Why have you rejected us? And a lot of Psalms struggle with that too. And the worst thing that we can do is allow doubt to settle in our hearts. Allow it to concrete itself in our souls. And I'm not saying that we need to suppress it and push it down. We're not supposed to do that. We need to pull it up and confront it. Deal with it. One of my favorite authors, Tony Campalo, he wrote this essay on doubt. He says, Faith that is not tested by doubt is a faith that leaves the individual vulnerable. We have seen young men and young women go off to universities with a naive version of Christianity that's never been questioned. They are so vulnerable to the confrontations in the classroom and the dorm room that their survival as Christians is in jeopardy. If we can go through periods of doubt without being destroyed by it, we will be made stronger. Doubt is the fire that purifies our faith. Doubt burns up the hay, wood, and stubble, leaving behind pure gold. And guys, being immersed by doubt isn't a bad thing. You're not a bad person for struggling with, with that. Not at all. But it's when it goes unchecked. It's when it's not dealt with. It's when it goes rampaging through our hearts, when it becomes an issue. And we don't have to feel threatened or intimidated by the attacks of our people. I used to get like that. When I was first reading Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, I was looking at it and I was like, Ugh. and I started to feel threatened, that my, my belief was being threatened. But when I realized that his argument wasn't that great and it was just a loud dog, again, barking, I realized that our faith has stood for 2,000 years against every attack, ever against every persecution, against every enlightenment that's ever happened. And you know what? It stands because there's people there willing to defend it at its gates. And so, confront your doubts. Deal with them. And help other people navigate through them. Finally, the thing, probably one of the most important aspects of how we love God with our mind is by touching the next generation. And young people, more than anybody, have a dire need to recapture the Christian mind. J.P. Moreland writes, Young children can ask such profound intellectual questions about God and religion. And if we do not take them seriously and work to provide them with good answers, it will impact the vibrancy of their Christian faith. It's so crucial that we teach our kids to reason out their, their faith with, with the Lord. Help them ask the hard questions. Help them reason out their own identity in Christ and wrestle with the issues. Parents, don't be frightened or threatened when kids ask you those kind of questions. 
I mean, we, I, oh, at some point, we all wonder why we believe what we believe. And if it's your child or somebody that you know, a niece or nephew, or just a young person comes up to you and asks you something like, why doesn't God just destroy all the evil in the world and take care of it for us? Or, who made God? Those are really good questions. And don't just dismiss them. I mean, I used to do that when, when you know, a young person came up to me. I was like, I don't know, kid. And you were talking about that. I was like, or I would give them a so-so answer. But really, they can ask amazing questions. And we need to sit and really help them wrestle through that stuff. And if we don't, as parents and mentors, help them kind of navigate through their faith, they'll turn to other people. I know that a lot of my friends, when they went to college, I mean, I had a friend that went to OSU, and he was telling me, he's like, yeah, you know, I mean, I was always nervous about asking questions in class or asking questions about faith to my parents. And, you know, this professor really struck me straight, you know, I mean, I never knew that, you know, Jesus was really influenced by Eastern religions and, you know, and that, you know, basically he's Buddha in Jesus' form. And I was like, seriously? And he's like, yeah. I was like, okay. Uh, and guys, we need to influence our young people toward loving God with all their minds. And the answer isn't to shield them from those, those ideas and the answer isn't to protect them from those things but it's to give them the tools to face them because they're not going to be in the nest forever. And there's going to be birds out there with really sharp talons. And we need to be able to equip them and give them the tools necessary to survive, especially going to a secular school. And if you're looking to get involved, and you know this isn't meant to be a plug or anything like that, with young people. We have a great, great, great discipleship program over there uh, in the youth building called GEAR. And it's an amazing, amazing, amazing program. And the biggest testament to our church and your support of the youth is that our discipleship group is bigger than our youth group now. Praise God, that's awesome. And we are just so excited to, to, to continue to do that. And we could always use teachers. So if you're interested in doing that, come talk to me or talk to James, and we'd love to, to be able to, to help you toward that. Another great thing is, uh, as James mentioned in the announcements, is the Touching Tomorrow option. I myself was once an ID student and went to Canby Bible College. And I went down to Life Bible College. I visited some other colleges. And let me just say this. The faculty we have here is insanely incredible. I mean, I was just like, man, you know Al Carpenter. Who are you? You know, And it was just amazing to see how much of a quality education we provide here at Canby Bible College. And so continue to support things like that. If you're feeling in your heart stirred toward uh, being an ID host parent, that's another thing. Uh, come talk in the lobby, and that's another way to pour into the next generation. I know for me personally, that's huge. Guys, this next generation needs its forerunners to pave the way for them. And in everything, guys, this, this message isn't exhaustive in covering everything about living the life of loving God with all your mind. It's, it's not meant to be. It's just meant to kind of be a little introductory sample and an order, if you will, you know. But we can begin to love God with all our mind by sharpening our tools, confronting our doubts, and pouring into the next generation and we need to start doing that today. The enemy would like nothing more for us to think this isn't worth our time and to think that it's beyond us. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter where 
what background you come from. It doesn't matter if you have, you don't even have a high school education or GED or you, you know, have three doctorates and you're working on number four. It doesn't matter. We're all called to this and we're all called to at least support it. One of my favorite verses is just that is kind of has a haunting application today is 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 5. And it's Paul encouraging Timothy and, and giving him kind of a, kind of a final push. And I think it really applies for us today. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by making His appearance in His kingdom. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is so important for us to realize that, yes, people are going to have itching ears and, and find teachers to suit their own passions, yes. But we still need to do the work of the ministry. And if we don't, this is the kind of world that we face today. I'm going to read for you guys a poem uh, that's by a British journalist named Steve Turner. And it's called Creed of the Modern Man. And it is awfully tongue-in-cheek and very sarcastic. So uh, bear with me. But it's talking about, uh, it highlights uh, modern humanity's condition. It goes like this. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your definition of knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think most of his good morals were actually pretty bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read about was. They all believe in love and goodness and stuff. They only differ in matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes nothing. <laughs> because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all of us, except perhaps maybe Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson. What's selected is average, what's average is normal, and what's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors, and the Russians would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that leads them down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions, and conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe there is no absolute truth. We accept the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. Then he adds this postscript. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear, state of emergency, sniper kills ten, troops on rampage, youths go looting, bomb destroys school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. This is what our world and our people and, and the, our loved ones will be left with without reason. Without Christians to give them meaning, a purpose, and a hope.
And we desperately need to use our minds. The most amazing tool that God has given us to reach a world that so desperately needs Him. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, God, we need You. Lord, we need You so terribly.